0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. Welcome back to the Conservative Review podcast here at our Northern Command Center on this fine Monday. New week. We are excited to get back to business here because there is so much going on, even though the week is still young. And let me tell you, there's a lot more to life than Jeffrey Epstein. So if you're looking for more news on that, wrong place to go. We are your only source of independent conservative talk. And I stress the word independent uh, because really we have two political parties in this country. One that is liberal and one that is a de-civilization party. Yes, the liberal party is the GOP and the de-civilization party is the Democrat party. Um, it's not liberal. I mean, it's not even socialist or even even Marxist or communist. Communists weren't necessarily for open borders, destroying their civilization. Man's a woman, a woman's a man, you know, this type of stuff. So I think we've moved beyond that point. I, I would say it's a decivilization party and the Republican Party, because the Democrats have moved so far to the. I don't want to call it left. I mean, it's off the loony bin deep end. They themselves have moved to the left, but there's still room between them and the Democrats and those of us who are normal that just want the rule of law, free markets, traditional values, national security and sovereignty enforced, our laws enforced. We want three branches of government, not just one in the federal judiciary. We're left without a voice, without a party, without a movement. And that's what we're doing here to rebuild that movement. So I'm not going to waste any precious minutes on Jeffrey Epstein. I, I can't imagine what public policy outcome is important to us with that. Really, if you are a conservative and you care about the country, the most important news of the day is the Trump administration's new regulation they just promulgated or announced in, uh, in the Federal Register, it's going to be officially enacted in 60 days, to finally enforce in some modest way our public charge laws as they apply to immigration. This sits at the nexus of welfare and immigration, two of the most important public policy issues. So wherever you are, if you're a liberal, conservative, anything in between, That's really the most important news story of the day. Therefore, some of my colleagues in this industry will never touch it because why focus on something important when you can focus on something sensational? But this really is very consequential in many ways. The discussion, the rule itself, actually, in my view, it doesn't really change that much. But what it also demonstrates is how the media uses what I call the David Copperfield syndrome to fool everyone. It's this sleight of hand, the illusions, illusory reporting where they give you no context. They give you no history, no sense of the law. And they're announcing, oh, today Trump announced a new regulation, another part of his agenda to to limit immigration. And It completely misses the point, of course. Nothing to do with limiting the numbers. That's a separate, important debate, how much immigration we want every year. But this is more the quality of the immigrants we do bring in. And, of course, they make no mention of law. And that's what we're here for. Policy, law, history, full analysis. You're not going to get this anywhere else. So, from the get-go, it's important to remember That public charge laws, meaning the notion that immigration as an elective policy, it's an elective policy of a nation. We don't have to bring in anyone as a nation. We could bring in a lot. We could bring in small numbers of immigrants. We can bring in no immigrants. Picture you have a solid tier one football or baseball team. And that team is now ready for the draft pick. Now, you don't draft players for the benefit of those players. You draft players for the benefit of your existing team. In other words, you're going to draft people that you think are going to be a net benefit to your team. Now, picture America as the ultimate first draft pick. Or, I mean, not the pick itself, but the ability to make the picks. The immigrants, in this case, if we continue that analogy, will be the the draftees but for us everyone wants to come to america we have 7.8 billion people in the world there was a simple principle since colonial times in this country that we should only bring in people that will be self-sufficient again just like when we talk about illegal alien criminals or, or legal immigrant criminals it's not that it's worse when a Immigrant is a criminal than when an American is. It's just, again, from a public policy standpoint, it's redressable. Um, as far as those born here, we got to deal with them. They, they're, they're, here. If they're not here, we don't have to bring them in and we don't have to give them status, give them a green card, give give them uh citizenship, naturalize them if they're going to be a criminal. And it's likewise for a public charge. We have a lot of people on welfare in this country. We have 40 million people on food stamps. What is it up to 70 million on Medicaid? Certainly, if people are clamoring to come here and there are plenty of people who are not going to use those services. It's common sense that you're not going to bring in people who do. In other words, back in the day, this was a universal principle. It's been a universal principle until the Democrats and the media created this decivilization agenda. And we're going to talk about it a lot today, the 1996 both welfare law and immigration law. We passed both of them that year, bipartisan majorities, and President Clinton signed both of them into law. And back then you had people like Barbara Jordan. She was a member of the House Congressional Black Caucus. She was all for welfare among Americans, but she was very strongly supportive of the notion that we shouldn't add to the welfare problem so if we have you know hundreds of thousands of immigrants who want to come that aren't going to be on welfare and hundreds of thousands who will well we're only going to pick the ones who won't it was a a simple proposition it's there's nothing more complicated than that now they're going to make it seem like trump is inventing something new no it's current law on the books that once again recently has not been enforced But the reality is, the reality is that it has been around since the 1600s. First, we had colonies enforce it, then states, then the federal government. So basically, the colonies already in the 1600s, they called them paupers back then. They they were called pauper laws. Now, if you remember 16, 17, 1800s, we didn't have a welfare state. But nonetheless, there was still a concept of a public charge. There was a robust civil societal system of religious institutions, private NGOs that would help support people that were homeless or whatever, couldn't support themselves. And that's a whole nother thing. We should do a show on that exclusively on that issue one day, just how welfare destroyed that system. Um, but you know people think like we didn't have a system in place we did and proof's in the pudding our immigration laws reflected that because you might say well Daniel if we didn't really have a robust immigration system until the 19th, uh, welfare system until the 1960s well why did we need laws ensuring that the immigrants we chose to brought in wouldn't become a public charge well what it meant back then was a charge to the civil society so in the 1600s um you know, they already had anti-pauper laws. Uh, they were concerned that England would send us boatloads of people they didn't want to the colonies. Um, they called them dumping back then to just dump on us. Convicts, lunatics, as they called it. This is just the terminology they used back then. Paupers. Um, so they adopted these laws to deny entry. Um, it, it started in the northern colonies in the 1600s, later on in the southern colonies in the 1700s. and. The Continental Congress, even in 1788, before we adopted the Constitution the year later, they actually um, urged the states to pass laws preventing, quote, the transportation of convicted malefactors from foreign countries. Again, they were very paranoid at the time that Europe was going to just send us those people. So they're like, hey, no, hands off, we don't want that. During the debate over the Naturalization Act of 1790, Madison declared... I do not wish that any man should acquire the privilege, meaning citizenship, but such as would be a real addition to the wealth or strength of the United States. Okay, it was a very simple concept. I discussed this in chapter six of my book, Stolen Sovereignty. You could still get it at Amazon. Really in-depth about our history and tradition on immigration. Chapter six, a little bit in chapter seven. We were very careful, very, very careful. And again, it's very simple because immigration is here to benefit the country as a whole. Now, when our nation started, we didn't fully have the federal government control immigration because of the sensitive politics of slavery. Back then, if you used the word migration, it meant really one thing and that's the slave trade so it was the delicate delicate balance of power between the northern and southern states so congress was not allowed to even get involved until 1808 right that was part of article 1 section uh 9 where they couldn't get involved and even afterwards they could but really until after the civil war they didn't do it because of um again you know, We picture it more immigration. Back then, it would have been the slave trade. So until the Civil War was worked out, we didn't really deal with this. And also, before the Civil War, we didn't have, for the most part, mass migration uh, just because you didn't have massive uh, passenger ships. I mean, you didn't have in the early 1800s, you had more cargo ships. You didn't have thousands of people come at a time. Nonetheless, the, the federal government did use diplomatic tools through the State Department. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in my book. If they didn't want certain types of immigrants, they would let the host countries know, hey, you know, this is part of foreign policy. They would have treaties. Um, Nowadays, we look at immigration more in terms of what we call the Department of Homeland Security. Back then, it would have been the State Department dealing with that. So in the 1800s, before the feds took it over in 1875, 1884, and 1891, with those laws, the states took care of it. Now, the border states back then weren't, you know, Texas, Arizona, California. The border states were really most prominently New York and Massachusetts because people came by boat from Europe. That's where they landed. In the 1820s, 1830s, New York and Massachusetts and Maryland, because you always had um, the harbor in Baltimore, They passed laws mandating inspection of landing vessels at the ports to weed out those who would likely become a public charge. Now, I want to read to you just how important this was. Now, the problem is. You might think, well, here's the deal. It's all good and well for a state to regulate, you know, the states don't want to become a public charge, but weren't states starting to infringe upon the federal power of international commerce right you're you're stopping ships you're regulating them you're making all these things so there was a court case over it city of new york v milne in 1837 and the court actually said that the goal of preventing both public charge criminals um health concerns was so foundational to the internal power of a state that even if it forced them to infringe a little bit on the external power of the whole union, they had that ability to do that. That's how important it was. Um, This is, I'm quoting from that court case, now in relation to the section the act immediately before us that is obviously passed with a view to prevent her citizens from being oppressed by the support of multitudes of poor persons who come from foreign countries without possessing the means of supporting themselves, there can be no mode in which the power to regulate internal police could be more appropriately exercised. New York, from her particular situation, is perhaps more than any other city in the Union exposed to the evil of thousands of foreign emigrants arriving there and the consequent danger of her citizens being subjected to a heavy charge in the maintenance of those who are poor. It is the duty of the state to protect its citizens from this evil. They have endeavored to do so by passing, amongst other things, this section of the law in question. We should, upon principle, say that it has the right to do so. That was the Supreme Court in 1837. Now, later on, you know, the courts kind of said, hey, there's some problems here. It really is federal power. Um, Again, not that it, the principle wasn't legitimate, but that, you know, really the feds need to do it. And then so eventually the feds did it. In the 1870s, 1880s, and that's when they started passing laws to bar um, poor, paupers, lunatics, all the words they used back then. Um, in other words, undesirable immigrants. We only want people that are, that are desirable. And since that system was set up under the Department of Treasury in the 1880s, 1890s, they strictly enforced it. If, if they thought you were likely to become a public charge, you were inadmissible. If you were caught here as a public charge, you were deported. Um, If you were a public charge a certain number of years after having been admitted. And the vessel that brought you here had to pay for the trip back. I mean, that's how clear they were. The American people should never be on the hook, not one dime for the cost of immigration. And again, it's a simple principle. We have our own people to deal with. So certainly if we're going to have an elective policy, especially when everyone wants to come to America, we're only going to have people that could pay their own way. It's a simple principle everyone until the left of this generation agreed to. So that's a brief history lesson on this point. And like I said, I mean, this was so strong that even there was a case when, um, and this is another thing, how strongly they enforce laws, not just a public charge, but what they called uh, feeble-minded. I'm just using the terms of the laws back then. If if you had a family member that they inspected you at Ellis Island and they said, hey, this person's feeble-minded, you're out. So what happened, there was one case where this uh, Kaplan family from Russia came in and then World War I broke out. They said, hey, this girl is feeble-minded. Get out of here. Um But, you know, World War I broke out, so they couldn't send her back. They made a private NGO pay for her stay temporarily during those years before she was deported. So that's how strongly we enforce that. Nonetheless, over the years, since Hart Seller, the 1965 so-called Kennedy Bill, started paving the way for Large, large groups of immigrants from third world countries um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, as well as over that same period of time as when we started having illegal immigration. This system started breaking down and, and immigration and illegal immigration became a tremendous, tremendous public charge on our country. This was one of the tenets, central tenets of the 1996 um, contract with America put forward by newt gingrich when republicans actually stood for something and initially they wanted to end all forms of welfare for all legal immigrants meaning even after they naturalize so originally republicans introduced the bill in 1996 to wall off permanently all welfare so in other words if you are coming here as an immigrant you had to promise never to take welfare, even not just as an immigrant, but even after you're naturalized. The left went crazy over that, so they watered it down. So they passed two bills, the Welfare Reform Act and the Immigration Reform Act, and the two dovetailed together very closely as ensuring that the American people would never be on the hook for this. So under existing laws, there's really four areas where our laws indulge this concept of public charge through immigration. Section 212A4 of the INA, those seeking entry into the United States, or those already here, let's say on some visa, that want to adjust their status to that of a green card, are inadmissible if the individual, quote, at the time of the application for admission or adjustment of status, is likely at any time to become a public charge. Folks, that bill passed, and again, it's been on the books, like I said, since colonial times, but this iteration with that language was passed in 1996. It was supported by Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, you name it. All of them supported it. Now, Section 237A5 states, that any alien who within five years of the date of entry has become a public charge from causes not affirmatively shown to have arisen since entry is deportable. So let's say we make a mistake and you're let in anyway, and then, and then we're like, hey, you're on welfare. Wait a minute, you're an immigrant. Hey, let's take a look at your application. Wait a minute, you should never have been here on the face of it. Me- meaning, like, let's say a guy had a job and he had the ability to support himself, but he lost his job, so that we're not gonna deport you. But let's say it became clear that you came in under false pretenses, you're deportable. That is current law. Current law, Section Two Thirteen A empowers the Attorney General general to require sponsors to sign an affidavit agreeing, quote, to maintain the sponsored alien at an annual in- income that is not less than one hundred twenty five percent of the federal poverty line. Um, DHS could levy a bond for these people to pay to ensure that the people they sponsor don't become a public charge. And then there was the Section 403 of the Welfare Act. It was called um, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act of 1996, the famous Welfare Reform Act that Bill Clinton signed. Joe Biden voted for it. It barred legal immigrants from using welfare for five years. The first five years they're here. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be on welfare. Well, those are two separate things. One's immigration law. We're not going to let you in if we think you're likely to become a public charge let's say we let you in well this actually addressed the welfare provision itself that you're not allowed to become a public charge bill clinton signed both of these into law of course like every single part of our immigration laws it wasn't enforced it, a it wasn't enforced and b there's loopholes um fascinating statistic here jeff sessions when he was in the senate he did an analysis of every application from fiscal year 2005 to fiscal year 2011 just 9700 applications out of more than 116 million were denied based on public charge grounds that's 0.0008 percent of all immigration applications where this qualified based on public charge and in fact for a while Until recently, USCIS had an entire page dedicated to advertising welfare benefits to newly arrived immigrants. Total lawlessness. Now you might think, okay, well, few people were denied because there's few immigrants that are a public charge. Uh, No, no, not at all. Not at all. So if you look here, I'm going to put up on the screen. I did an article about two years ago that goes through all of the top sending countries. So if you look from Mexico, China, these are the countries where we get the most immigrants from. In other words, Mexico, 174,000 a year, tremendous amount of green cards. And this is I use Stephen Camerata's data of Center for Immigration Studies, where he combs census data to show how what percentage of foreign nationals. Um, In the country of that origin are at or near poverty level and use means tested programs and you'll see the red and and green arrows um, reflect are they above the the native average right the average of or the national average or are they below and you'll see almost all of them are above it's in the red well above so for example mexicans um you know among Americans, twenty-six point nine percent, twenty-six point nine percent of Americans are on one or more means-tested programs. Sixty percent of Mexican nationals, sixty percent take one or more um, program. Seventy percent of Dominican nationals. These are all the countries where we have a tremendous amount of immigration from. You look on and on, and you'll see the, the, the consistent factor is that we just never enforced it. And it turns out that um, 72%, meaning if you go, part of it is the five-year bar, but if you go beyond the five-year bar where they could access it, so among immigrants here for 10 years, 70% of, of households headed by an immigrant are on some form of welfare. California alone, seventy-two percent. Texas, sixty-nine percent. So it's a joke. We don't enforce it. We just don't enforce it at all. And um, you know, the proof's in the pudding. According to Pew Research, as of twenty thirteen, the median family income for immigrant families from Mexico was thirty-one thousand. The Caribbean, thirty-one thousand. Africa, thirty-four thousand. Asia, 46,000. South America, 37,000, as compared to immigrants from Europe, where the average income is 66,000. Here's another important statistic. While median adjusted family income of native born Americans has risen from 46,000 in 1970 to 60,800 in 2013, immigrant families have seen a slight dip in overall income from 40,000 to 39,000 over the same period. And again, this all has to do with the fact that we're bringing in a lot more that are impoverished and they're mixing in with a lot of illegal immigrants, especially from Mexico and Central America. And then the whole anchor baby business. So here's the joke. Children of immigrants born here, including illegal immigrants in the latter part, is lawless and it shouldn't be done. They're viewed as citizens, so all these families are collecting welfare, WIC, and food stamps and Medicaid on behalf of that of those kids, of the American-born kids. But that's still a public charge. Meaning, if you're if you're going to come in here and we say, wait a minute, okay, maybe you and your wife now, let's say it's a married couple, you could, um, you know, live on thirty thousand income. But if you're going to have a bunch of kids, you're 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 not. So you know, you should be inadmissible. That's a public charge. But we don't enforce that because we say they're Americans. So I know I have spent 25 minutes <laughs> with this introduction, but I think that's very important. In comes the Trump administration, and it's a very modest, modest change. So there is a formula on the books to define public charge, but what I'm telling you is we rarely enforced it. So it's essentially zero. We didn't deny anyone. What, what they're doing is this so the most there's three stages there's you want to come in you're in and you want to adjust your status to a green card and then there's you've become a public charge could we deport you so the latter part to be very clear they're not enforcing and they made that very clear even though it's current law they're not going to deport someone for being a public charge i'm just saying they're not doing it so for all the talk of trump being so tough they're not going to do it even though it's current law it's it's passed by by everyone it was it's in the 1996 immigration law that um that was supported with bipartisan majorities now what what they do enforce is this basically they're tightening up the definition of public charge so anyone who takes is on one or more welfare programs for 12 months out of a 36 month window They're going to say, wait a minute, you can't get a green card. They're not going to deport them, but they're going to just leave them in that status. So, eventually, if their status does expire, then they could be deported indirectly. Also, if they're likely to be on, meaning if based on their income, and this is all in statute that you have to take into account age, health, family status, assets, resources, and financial status, education, and skills, um, they're actually going to enforce that if you're likely to be on a program then on the front end, we're not going to let you in. You're inadmissible. Moreover, under current regulation, they only applied it to two programs, TANF, which is the cash welfare, and SSI, Supplemental Security Income. They're going to apply it now to um, some forms of Medicaid, Section 8, and food stamps. So God bless them. They're at least going to start enforcing it. That's great. I'm just telling you, it's very modest. Um Medicaid, anyone under 21 is exempt. Pregnant women are exempt. Um anyone who any household who takes welfare on behalf of an American-born kid is not going to be considered a public charge, even though that's most of them. Most of them is because of that. Um they are not gonna apply it to WIC, CHIP, National School Lunch Program, disaster relief, medical assistance, emergency medical assistance, foster care, student and mortgage loans energy assistance, food pantries, and homeless shelters, and Head Start. They're not going to apply it to anyone who's here on a humanitarian thing. Refugees, asylum, parole, U visas. Now they're all claiming it, so it's going to apply to all of them. So it's really only going to apply to a very small sliver of people. So let's just get that perspective right here. But the media is not going to tell you that. Now, I mean, there's still more. There's a lot of fine print there. But this is just what I've gleaned from the, you know, summary documents I had time to read this morning. And uh, and I got a little heads up from some friends in the administration that this was going to happen. But there's there's a lot going on here. Now, I want to tell you another thing that unfortunately this is not applying to. Illegal immigration. All of them are a public charge. Who's paying for all of this care at our border? Who? They come in literally to say I want hospital care. I'm having a baby. Wait a minute. They should be inadmissible. So God bless the Trump administration for enforcing this for legal applicants and I think we should, but why are we enforcing it for illegal immigrants? If you break into our border, you shouldn't be better off. These laws apply to them. They're not exempt from that. That's nonsense. Based on my estimate, my rough estimate, roughly, it will cost us at a, at a minimum $150 billion, the lifetime cost of just the 1 million illegal immigrants that we're going to get this year. The formula I have is about 150000 per family. And I'll tell you, it doesn't include the anchor babies. It doesn't include the fact that this formula that I've written about is more for Mexican migrants, Central Americans are the ones coming in now. They're even less educated, especially the ones that are from the uh indigenous tribes. Um whereas in past years most of the legal immigrants were single adults from Mexico, um now they're families with children that that are going to, you know, cost a lot more money. And uh Look, anyone who's, who's a public charge caught here is a legal immigrant, should be deported. I don't understand how we don't enforce this at the border. This alone, if we were to enforce this, would shut down the whole system. Oh, Daniel, but there are asylees. No, no, no. You can't have a million people being asylum. Okay, that's nonsense. That's a prima facie invasion. And yes, it is an invasion. Moreover, to my knowledge, the Trump administration has still not enforced the most... No-brainer public charge. We could end illegal immigration tomorrow if the IRS would work with DHS to vet out all of the identity of those working here illegally and stealing identity and exposing that. If they couldn't get identity, they can't work. If they can't work, they wouldn't come. It's that simple. But instead, the IRS has lawlessly Been inviting illegal immigrants and to file tax returns. Hey, if you don't have a social security number, we'll give you what's called a taxpayer identification number. It's completely lawless, and that allows them to get the refundable portion of the child tax credit. Remember, if you're low income and you have a bunch of kids, you're not paying taxes. When you pay taxes, so to speak, and file your your uh, forms. Let's say you pay $500 in um, payroll taxes, but you get back $7,000 in refundable tax credit. So you're not paying taxes, you're getting $6,500. That's that's welfare. That's absolutely welfare. It costs us $4.2 billion a year, this business. That needs to be shut down. That needs to be shut down. Under Section 401c1 of the Welfare Act, it barred illegal aliens from receiving any retirement welfare health disability public or assisted housing post secondary education food assistance unemployment benefits or any other similar similar benefit for which payments or assistance are provided to an individual household or family eligibility unit by an agency of the United States or by appropriated funds of the United States refundable tax credits are welfare our government counts them as expenditures Outlays, right? Not offsets of revenue in the tax scheme. It puts it on the outlay, the cost expenditure side of the ledger. So that is a welfare program. And um, you know, the law says clearly any compelling government, it's a compelling government interest to remove the incentive for illegal immigration provided by the availability of public benefits. That's a big incentive. So kudos to the Trump administration for finally enforcing this. But there's still a lot more they could be doing. So this is very modest. Another thing that's important is the media is going to be apocalyptic. Oh, my gosh, we're going to die. Oh, my gosh, there's hundreds of thousands of immigrants are going to be thrown out in the street. So on the one hand, they say these are the most industrious people. What are you talking about? They're not a drain. They're an asset. And in fact, if you cut all all this third world immigration or illegal immigration, um, our GDP is going to go down. That's what they say. And then, okay, so we say, fine. Therefore, we're just going to enforce our laws on the books, our public charge laws, and you can't get welfare, right? I mean, you guys are the biggest entrepreneurs. You're all you know, making a million dollars a year, right? So you shouldn't have any problem with us enforcing that. No, how dare you do that? You're going to throw them out in the street. Well, what do you mean? I thought you just said they're a benefit. Checkmate. So you can't have it both ways. And this is where you're going to see, watch the media try to have it both ways. So this is with the public charge law. We're going to talk about this more. Again, the media is not going to tell you. It's our current laws on the books. It's backed by the most foundational principles and laws since our colonial times. Immigration shouldn't cost American people a dime. Under the even under Trump's proposal, it doesn't fully enforce the law. It's not going to apply to tremendous amount of of these immigrants. We're still not enforcing it on illegal immigrants, which is counterintuitive. And even for these people, it's not going to apply to all these programs a lot of Medicaid and certainly all the anchor babies of illegal immigrants and the children born to legal immigrants. Which I'm fine with children of legal immigrants being American citizens, but I'm just saying, you know, that needs to be taken into into account too. But I understand they want to do this slowly. Fine. Now, everyone's talking about the next thing. What's the next thing? Da-da-da-da. The courts. Nothing matters until we discuss the courts. So, basically, this administration has not done that much to enforce current law. And the few things they do, the courts screw with, and then they just give in to it. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, it's black and white in current law, and he's not even fully enforcing it. He's just enforcing a sliver of it. How in the world could a court mess with it? Well, we've seen this a million times. They just say, I don't like the law. We've allowed a courts to do whatever they want, any district judge. And this is really the other half of it. Nothing matters until we start a party and a movement that will teach the truth about the power of the courts. That we have three branches of government with the courts being the weakest, not the strongest. Just on Friday, a Virginia judge said that schools in Virginia must allow men with a yin and a yang plumbing into a female bathroom or females into a male bathroom in the schools what congress could never do democrats would never have the guts to pass such a bill imagine passing a bill a piece of legislation how transformational that would be um okay here's the deal there's no such thing as male and female bathrooms Right. They can never pass that. And if they did, they would suffer reprisal in an election. In comes a single district judge and could enact what Democrats, the social transformation that Democrats wouldn't or couldn't electorally pass in 100 years. Overnight, they could play God. So states don't even have the power to define gender, to define life, to define marriage. Oh, but states do have the power, according to the courts to infringe on federal powers of immigration law and bring in all sorts of illegal aliens and protect them and harbor them in contravention to federal law. What's up is down. What's down is up. What's in is out of the Constitution. What's out is in. Citizens are aliens. Aliens are citizens. That's what we have district judges doing. You know, it's kind of a slow news cycle. It's August recess. But guess what? Guess what? The courts work every day. And they transform America and have more power than God on a daily basis. And we do nothing about it. as we act as if it's legitimate. The phony, liberal Republican party just goes along with it. So I'm just telling you, this is worthless if we're going to accede to the point that a court could just uh, do this. I mean, can you imagine if Congress were to pass legislation and say, I think, illegal, I think um, immigrants need to be on welfare, need to be a public charge, that no one in the public would go for that. That's why we have a Congress. Yet a single court could pass any legislation they want. That's what we have here going on. Finally, we're we're running out of time here. I just want to go through one other thing. So the New York Times is very concerned about the rhetoric of, of us conservatives. Um you'll see they have up an article today basically saying that the incendiary language of conservatives calling the border crisis an invasion is uh, is really linked to these white supremacists and this El Paso shooter and the problem with that is what they're missing as we noted last week is this is an invasion and the people it hurts most and directly are Hispanics. We have the most brutal cult cartels at our border. Take a look at these pictures provided to CR by uh, Customs and Border Protection at uh, the Rio Grande Valley sector. Uh, I, I asked them for some information. They did send me some pictures of bullet holes in their boats at the river when on Friday, over 50 rounds from what appears to be an automatic rifle automatic weapons were shot at them at our agents the cartels are right there that's an invasion most likely what i'm told is why would they do that they're trying to get through their big bosses to our side of the border that's an invasion countries would go to war over that we don't because somehow we allow the cartels to do that if we had hezbollah or al-qaeda flowing um a million migrants a year into our country strategically so they can get in their drugs and their criminals and their, their cartel bosses. What would we treat that as? That's, that's an invasion. <laughs> so, you know, we focus on, oh, they don't like Hispanics, so you're calling them an invasion. No, actually, it's the cartels, and they are harming Hispanics more than everyone anyone else. So I just wanted you guys to realize that Uh, What we predicted last week that they were going to use the El Paso shooting to go after conservatives and shut down debate over the border. Well, that's exactly what they're doing. So never back down from that. That absolutely is an invasion. Again, when we have a boat that says border protection and it has bullet holes in that, boy, is that symbolism for you. We don't have any border protection. We have bullet holes in the very boat that's supposed to be patrolling and they run away they don't engage them why don't they go to that island in that river and clean it out a military operation again the president is starting to fulfill some promises the public charge one today he needs to designate the cartels as terrorists so we're going to get back to some of this the safety security agenda um later this week but I did want to touch on today the fiscal aspect of immigration and some of the f- fundamentals on that issue that you're not going to hear anywhere else you got to subscribe to our youtube channel uh conservative review youtube channel this is where you're going to see our videos even if you like hearing the show only on itunes i'm telling you this is the way we're going to spread the message send this show to 10 to 20 of your friends and relatives until tomorrow god bless you all thank you for listening